Welcome back, folks, to Black Hoodie Alchemy. I'm your host, Anthony Tyler. We're here on the Fringe FM. You can catch this show every Monday evening, 6 p.m. Pacific Time. Or you can catch it uh, the day after on Spotify or Apple or wherever else you get your streaming um, needs fulfilled. Check out my website, divemind.net, or get my books, Hunt Manual, Dive Manual. Uh, Good stuff. Good stuff. And for anyone that doesn't remember, uh, I just want to make it clear that I used to be the number three podcast in America, but then Nelson Mandela went and killed that creator of, of the Berenstain Bears and caused the Mandela effect, and it threw us into a completely different timeline. And... Uh, you know, people are supposed to remember Mandela effects, like shifts. No one seems to remember that I was number three podcaster. So I just wanted to be made clear that if not for Nelson Mandela, I still would be. I would still be very prominent and influential, and everyone would know my name. All right. <laughs> Definitely not true. Moving forward. We are going to talk about belief some more today, and it's not going to be as brutal as the last couple episodes that have involved murder and sometimes human sacrifice and lots of drugs and just insanity. So it's going to be a little lighter this episode, and we're going to take what we've learned from analyzing these very, very disturbing cults, and we're going to basically just kind of you know, we're going to build each episode. Uh, You can listen to all these episodes singularly, but if you listen to them, especially in order, uh, I'd like to think at the very least that you'll get some added benefit to it. So, you know, I'm recording this with all the prior three episodes I've done in mind. So, um, and firstly, you know, do some announcements. Um, I'm actually going to be in a UFO documentary here soon. I won't say anything else uh, because I, I know they're right on the cusp of like officially announcing everything and they've already teased, you know, like announced the announcements. So word is abound, but it's hasn't been all the details aren't out there yet. So I'm just going to wait, but I can at least definitely talk about it. I've seen the creators talking about it. So but I'll leave it at that for the moment. It's going to be pretty sweet. I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, I'm not a ufologist. I am interested in UFOs, but in a peripheral way. Especially since I'm going to be in this documentary, I might as well do a, an episode on my my stance on UFOs and ufology here soon. But won't, that won't be the focus of today. Uh, I will just say that I'm really stoked on this documentary. And there's going to be some, some surprisingly prominent people in there. I, I'm definitely one of the lesser known individuals, and I'm I'm honored to be a part of the project. And I'm basically just going to be talking about um, my experiences. And for anybody that doesn't know, I guess I'll go into this one more time um, in the ufology episode I've done. But there's other places where I've talked about my UFO experiences. Like the first conversation I had with Soraya on Where Did the Road Go? Uh, my first chat with Miguel on Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio. Um, uh, other places I've definitely mentioned it. Uh, and gone into some detail, but essentially I've just seen some really weird stuff in the sky uh, living outside of Anchorage, Alaska, uh, around the Chugach Mountain Range, usually around between midnight and 3 a.m., 
actually the first time I saw them, I, I was on mushrooms with some people. And after that, I saw them a handful of times more and I was sober. So, and it was the same thing. So it's a curious story. Um, and I don't care who believes me. It's just, you know, I don't even know what it was. Could be UFOs or it's definitely UFOs, but what, if it's unidentified, then what is the identifiable part? You know, is that governmental? Is that extraterrestrial? Is it some sort of more paranormal, supernatural type thing? I don't know. And that's kind of what the documentary is about. It's just um, uh, getting experiences from different people, uh, those people being researchers or journalists or doctors even, uh, scientists, and and just kind of considering some of the more less physical angles, like how metaphysical might these things be? And we're not saying that they're angels either. It's just what people are focused on the nuts and bolts, flesh and blood of the UFO, but there is a lot going on in the uh, what's real and what's not. There's a very surrealistic angle to the UFO, and it seems to bleed a lot more into classical esotericism and metaphysics than it does um, Star Wars, essentially. Um, and there are a lot of people considering this, you know, this is, um, it, when you look into Fortean investigators who are more interested in the unexplainable at large, like more so than just UFOs, you find that Forteans don't often consider UFOs to be flesh and blood, nuts and bolts. So it's, it's a, it's an opinion that's always had a certain amount of momentum and it seems to be gaining more and more. But we're not, so we're not going to, that'll be all I say about that. But it is pertinent, you know, because uh, it helps us get to know each other, listener to show host here, and it does encapsulate belief and faith in many ways, and it lends to the conversation, most certainly. But, uh, and, and so we're, I'm kind of just going to talk about a few different things today, but the, the bulk of it being this, uh, this the only scientific peer-reviewed study it came out in 1999 about um, reincarnation. And I find it very interesting, and few people have really talked about it. I mean, it definitely made its waves, but I would think that there would be more people talking about it even still today because it's very much... it. The re-readability of it is... It's there. So, but first, um, I wanted to talk about some other lighter stuff. I mean, we've talked about human sacrifice and these things, so... I wanted to talk about Dr. Seuss and his midnight paintings. I don't know how many of you are aware of this, but this is basically one of the most wholesome, beautiful illustrations of shadow work in someone's life for positive reasons that I can find. And the so the, the midnight paintings are basically when Dr. Seuss had insomnia throughout his adult life. He would just kind of stay up and he would... He would just paint and he would allow himself to go into darker spaces and experiment with things that um, it still had that Seuss sort of vibe with the, the bending of things and the, the shapeliness and the, the way that the characters look. But it the tones and the shades, it's much darker. It's much grittier. Um, it's much more like existentially horrifying and some of it plays with textures and some of it's more psychedelic and some of it's just outright dark um 
but not in like gratuitous or grotesque ways. It doesn't change your viewpoint of Dr. Seuss. Like, oh my God, what was he doing? But it, um, it, if anything, it's like a, it's just a deepening of an appreciation for me. Um, there's a, there's a few paintings I obviously can't show you because this is an audio medium, but if you decide that you want to look up, there's like 50 or so, or maybe I'm exaggerating, but there's like a couple dozen at least um, of these paintings. And the, my favorites, I really like them all, truly, but the ones that always stuck out to me the most are, are titled Pink Tuft, Small Beast in a Night Landscape, The Stag at Eve, The Great Cat Continuum, Surly Cat Being Ejected, and Cat from the Wrong Side of the Tracks. Really dark and psychedelic, like I said. Fascinating stuff. And it seems like Seuss was really working through some of his own personal traumas. And I mean, you can see that throughout the paintings. There's some works that are titled, like, Artist Worrying, Self-Portrait of an Author Worrying About His Next Book. And it's like just a really anxious looking Susian character and there's other stuff like that and you can tell that he was just trying to get some shit off his chest and it's powerful stuff it's very cathartic and um I think it's worth looking at you know because people like to over mystify something like shadow work or sometimes they like to over psychologize it but this is a great example of something that I would consider both practical and mystical, you know, because art is just kind of mystical by definition, especially when it's authentic like this. So anyway, good, good food for thought there, um, if you ask me at least. And also, Dr. Seuss um, requested that these not be released until after he passed away. So that and that, that sort of lends to the the shadow work element but i mean primarily to unpack it a little bit for those who aren't completely aware of the full aspects of shadow work um which is something i should probably do like an episode on uh, really just broaching that whole subject um the quick definition is it's all of that which is within your psyche it's been processed by your psyche in some way but it is not integrated into your persona or your active consciousness so sometimes that can just be like essentially raw data but sometimes that can also just be outright trauma that is that you know that you have to work through and those two things don't have to be mutually exclusive either but it's not always traumatic uh, and sometimes um, working with the shadow you know there's there's times to work with the light and dark and the shadow is not an evil thing it's just a natural part of the human psyche you know the uh if if you're christian the 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 you know and i very much uh appreciate christianity especially the esoteric tradition of it and not so much the exoteric boilerplate especially the the closer you get to televangelism the the quicker you start to lose me in like a roadrunner dust cloud but um, the Dante's Divine Comedy is something that I hold close to my heart and um, the whole Virgilian persona you know Virgil being uh, a pagan poet you know he was in purgatory but he wasn't banished to hell um, and there's a whole shadow element there that 
that gets into allegory of things not necessarily being divine in your own psyche. They shouldn't be. Essentially, just some things are are neutral in the psyche. And, and just because they aren't the highest ideals doesn't mean that they're downright evil. And sometimes you just have to familiarize yourself with the unfamiliar so you can sift through and say, okay, that's not... It's not how I want to live my life. Um, and, and, and by sifting through those things, we find um, the types of people we really want to be. And, you know, a good way to put it, simple, like this. I never trust somebody that has never, that never swears, that has never drank, never smoked. If you've tried all those things and decided that it's not for you, that's one thing but if you have just been raised or whatever to not touch any of those things and you're perfectly satisfied with that um, you might be a perfectly fine person I'm not saying that you're definitely crazy but I I have about as much um, trepidation with a person like that as I do with a strung out junkie because that person is so pent up and so unfamiliar with the with the unintegrated aspects of their own self that I don't know how am I going to get to know them they don't even know themselves and to me that's a wild card element that I don't really need I like people with you know self-awareness not just in like a like a pinky out sort of pompous way but people that are self-aware in ways that are not conducive to their own ego always you know, it's nice to have aspects of yourself. It's like I've said before, there's a time and a place to be very critical of yourself. And there's a time and place to be very confident in your capabilities. And part of the, you know, the existential alchemical process is balancing those two, the light and dark. And so at worst, you know, considering the, the shadow Virgilian aspect, you know, we're working with things that are alchemical you know processes um of refinement and so anyway there's no need to get all huffy and puffy if you're orthodox about this stuff because shadow work does not mean satanism and you know sometimes it does too if you want to just break down if you want to look at symbols like mathematically and say that certain symbols represent certain things, and you take that outside of dogma. We look at the whole picture as of comparative religion as puzzle pieces. They all represent different things. You can't homogenize them and say they're all the same, but they do represent one larger picture, um, the, this cultural landscape. And Satanism, especially what it's become today, is not you know it's this atheistic levee sort of thing and if you want to break it down in union components levee satanism is very much geared towards shadow work but in many ways it's easy to just become a manipulative douchebag with it as well so that's why i say i appreciate things like levee but i don't endorse them or him uh for clear reasons as i think i've just laid out there but uh all right so more more food for thought into belief 
if you've been waiting on the edge of your seat um, for this reincarnation study, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I hope I gave you enough of a heads up. We're going to talk about a couple different things. And reincarnation is something I find particularly interesting because it makes the most sense to me. I don't really know what happens when we die. Um, and part of this study I appreciate so much is even though the neuroscientist uh, Todd Murphy is clearly influenced by Eastern philosophy and metaphysics, he is not pushing an agenda here. It's a very interesting study. And so the name of this study was published initially in 1999, uh, The Structure and Function of Near-Death Experiences, an Algorithmic Reincarnation Hypothesis by uh, Todd Murphy. And, you know, there's, um, there's, so first of all, the study cites an interesting little bit, a 1993 study that showed that 70% of people who, uh, in the study, uh, who experienced near-death experiences uh, believe in reincarnation. And so, first of all, I think that's important to point out that regardless of the realities of this, let's just look at the human impact. And it definitely seems that humans are predisposed to believe in an afterlife. It seems to fit some deep existential need. And um, that, for, it, it, just looking at that first and foremost, that shouldn't be discounted. It's very important. And I also want to read a quote real quick from uh, the neuroscientist V.S. Ramachandran in his book, uh, The Telltale Brain, because this is going to really set the stage here. It is difficult to overstate the importance of understanding mirror neurons and their function. They may well be central to social learning, imitation, and the cultural transmission of skills and attitudes, perhaps even of the pressed-together sound clusters we call words. By hyper-developing the mirror neuron system, evolution, in effect, turned culture into the new genome. Armed with culture, humans could adapt to hostile new environments and figure out how to exploit formerly inaccessible or poisonous food sources in just one or two generations, instead of hundreds or thousands of generations such adaptations would have taken to accomplish through genetic evolution. Thus, culture became a significant new source of evolutionary pressure, which helped, um, which helped select brains that had even better mirror neuron systems and the imitative learning associated with them. All right. If I thought of this ahead of time, I would have pulled this up to give the most concise definition I possibly could, just to not mince words. Here it is. Mirror neurons are a type of brain cell that respond equally when we perform an action and when we witness someone else perform the same action. So it is very much integral to the cultural experience at large and uh, the artistic experience as well. So, um, and this in turn gets into dream phenomena and how we process our sensory data through, uh, like alongside and through the imagination. You know, and this is very much a, uh, like a Richard Dawkins sort of mentality. Um, a Richard Dawkins meets Jung. Uh, can you see, you know, Richard Dawkins being, you know, he wrote The God Delusion, um, and he also coined the term memetics initially, but Dawkins, his whole idea of God being a delusion is just very much his own interpretation. It's it's pretty easy to read the material of Dawkins and find it very interesting, but not walk away being uh, convinced that there's nothing metaphysical like, I've read a fair amount of Dawkins, and um, I'm a mystic. 
but I, and I do actually appreciate Dawkins. Uh, so, uh, I just think he's kind of a grumpy old man, but his work is not bad at all. Uh, and I'd also like to bring up, uh, Julian Jaynes and his work on the, um, his book, the, uh, like the bicameral mind, but it's the idea that the unconscious mind and conscious mind, uh, formed alongside one another. And that initially our thoughts and our inner experience came across as different voices and, and, and how this very much set the stage for mythology and folklore and metaphysical phenomena. And eventually that became more, uh, it became more prominent, at least in, um, it became more defined, like uh, barriers between the conscious and unconscious and the waking life and the imagination. It might not be that literal, um, as, as uh, Julian Jaynes puts it in his older work now, but there definitely seems to be some truth there. And it would only make sense that the more we develop our inner experience as like primordial humans, the more foreign it would be. And now we get to the point where it's just a part of our process. Because all these things have to have a starting point. What would it be like to be one of the trial humans that has the initial inklings of an th internal monologue? Probably pretty weird. Probably pretty psychedelic. And if you're eating wild mushrooms in the forest that happen to actually make you feel psychedelic, then uh, maybe, you know, as going back to um, the V.S. Ramachandran thing here, we can start to see leaps and bounds in cultural evolution and even physical evolution at that point, physical adaptations. Um, when you start to look at things like this, I don't, things like missing links kind of fall to the wayside for me because uh, there seems to be, many different catalysts throughout the human condition that have helped us sort of advance in this chaos theory snowball effect sort of way so and all this sets the stage for the considerations of death and the afterlife because what we're talking about here are ultimately people's views of the afterlife and then considering um, some of the theoretical physics from there and it's important to talk about this stuff because this is as well the stage that is set in this study on reincarnation uh, by Todd Murphy uh, and and along with you know in addition to these other uh, points of interest uh, dreams being a, a quintessential part well first off the diurnal process you know diurnal meaning day and night um, thus affected the human psyche eventually you know adjusted habitual sleep patterns form and it's not just random naps at night you know things even animals have a have at least a, a, a fairly defined diurnal thought process and thus in turn when the brain extrapolates that further and integrates that further into um, its adaptational processes we find that the night is essentially becomes a reservoir for the unconscious and the day becomes a reservoir for the conscious um, in terms of activity and therefore because of majority and we're dealing with symbols here and the symbolic evolution of the imagination you know night representing the unconscious and day representing the conscious getting into alchemical principles here um, so dreams in and of themselves uh, as an adaptational process 
um, are serving to sort of integrate and create a bridge between the the conscious and unconscious and the initial developments of the unconscious mind and therefore um, are serving as well to create the initial uh, soil for the 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 uh, the belief and the need in the afterlife you know because there it's a it's an ever-evolving ongoing process um, shadow work and the idea of um, humans just understanding what they are and why they are and how to kind of rise above the trauma and violence that's often found in the human condition you know the existential horror of it all and it's never going to be completely fulfilled because it's part of the human experience. So, you know, shadow work is learning to integrate those things and if, you know, not getting rid of them, understanding how to react to that and deal with them in, in proper ways and maybe not become so reactive. And this dealing with death and, and, and having this need for a belief in an afterlife since the dawn of humanity um is yeah it's something i find very fascinating and it represents the initial basis um of of this uh this research here so i got some excerpts here and we're gonna pick it apart a little bit before we go into the commercial break so Near-death experiences can be viewed as an algorithmic process that alters the many states of consciousness possible at the time of death so as to produce first the life review and then the quote-unquote point of no return. There can be positive or negative effect in any near-death state of consciousness, although the states will tend toward positive affect that uh, decreases resistance to the experience. I propose that the life review has a special function to sort out behaviors to repeat in future lives from those to avoid and the study goes on um, it talks about the um, the temporal lobe and um, uh, temporal lobe uh, epilepsy and seizures and that's a very interesting subject that gets into some meaty metaphysical stuff that is very positive and fascinating and also very dark and goes into like some serial killer territory uh, cult leader territory We'll, we'll save that for another time because we'll talk about reincarnation today. But it goes into some of the evolutionary adaptational value and how uh, near-death experiences and, um, and sleep and dreams um, are, are, are correlated to the same parts of the brain, essentially, and have very similar uh, adaptational values. And, and basically, they talk about why on a neuroscientific level you can um they're looking into near-death experiences and even some out-of-body experiences like um the um um in in mystical traditions and things um from like a anthropological point of view uh, I, because as i'm going into here a lot of this part of what the study says is this is a this is reincarnation from a cultural point of view a comparative religious point of view so we're looking into what you could say common rules of thumb um, between these things and 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 then when we find the common rules of thumb we look at this in the Darwinian model um, and see how it might play out in the scientific terms as we understand them and it's very fascinating 
um, I'll go into some of the the details here, like within the framework of what we know, um, the afterlife experience would seem to be some sort of algorithmic process. And in order to fit this algorithmic process into any sort of adaptational tangible level, you know, what the adaptation implies is that it, it improves um, biological survivability and how can you do that if you're dead we will answer those questions and more at least theoretically um, after the break this is black hoodie alchemy i'm your host anthony tyler and stay with us we'll be right back listen as we explore the mysteries of the universe the unknown High strangeness, consciousness, and our human potential. Lighting the Void is an eclectic program that strives to ignite the late night with stimulating conversations. Join us on The Fringe FM. The Natural Born Alchemist podcast is a podcast that covers topics like alchemy, shamanism, psychedelics, anarchism, and philosophy. Join Alex, that's me, and a multitude of guests on a quest to discover the nature of reality, of spirit, and of consciousness. Each episode will also introduce you to new music that you might never have heard before. You can find the podcast on most platforms. Simply search for Natural Born Alchemist or go directly to naturalbornalchemist.com. There you'll be able to find all the social media links as well. Freedom is in the mind. Thousands of people are having paranormal experiences with ghosts, demons, shadow people, dogmen, Bigfoot and more. Their stories need to be told, and they are being told. Dark Waters, the renowned storyteller, invites you to join at IamDarkWaters.com. For just a few dollars a month, you can listen to some of the most hair-raising and compelling stories on the planet. You'll have access to real-life stories told by Dark Waters, thousands of hours of content. Their encounters are being told and told by the best at IamDarkWaters.com. Listen to stories like The Rabbit Man, The Dogman Encounter in Silas, Alabama, The Man with No Face, The Other Woman, A Day Ahead of the Devil, Dogman Murder in Hurricane Ida, even a story of someone trying to kill a dogman, Louisiana Water Demon Stories. Sign up today and become a member at IamDarkWaters.com. That's IamDarkWaters.com. From parapsychology to pop conspiracy, and from parapolitics to health and esoterica, I'm Ryan Gable, host of The Secret Teachings, and I'll bring you all of this and more five nights a week right here on The Fringe FM. By using critical thinking and objectivity as keys to understanding, utilizing, and appreciating the secret teachings of all ages. You can catch The Secret Teachings Monday through Friday right here on The Fringe FM after Joe Roop and Lighting the Void. Do you want to escape the simulation? 
Well, join me, Jess Rogie, every week as we explore a variety of different realities to help expand our minds and find out a little more about this world we live in. Escape the simulation with me live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern here on TheFringe.fm. Musicians experience a lot of frustration with music marketing and promotion. They have no idea how to get their music heard, and they're spending hours sending emails, making phone calls, and hitting up their friends to promote them. With our industry-powered digital marketing platform, we can set up your media plan in minutes. Our team will automatically distribute your music across all the best channels, so you can focus on actually making the music. Submit your music today on our website at mymusicpromoter.com. That's mymusicpromoter.com. Yohoi there, it's Gigi from Shift Happens, and you're listening to the one and only Fringe FM. Well, at least I'd imagine so. I'm not sure how else, uh, you know, you'd be hearing this. Welcome back, folks, to Black Hoodie Alchemy. I'm your host, Anthony Tyler. We're here on the Fringe FM. Thanks for sticking with me through that little commercial break there. Um, Don't forget, you can catch me Monday evening, 6 p.m. Pacific time, or uh, the day after on Spotify or Apple or wherever else you're streaming your bullshit. Uh, Before the break, we were talking about reincarnation and the only scientific peer-reviewed study that's been done on the subject. Um, I've laid a lot of groundwork uh, as we've gone deeper into this study to demonstrate how this is a very legitimate scientific study, um, and it, it it it's really done as a as a, a cogent thought experiment. It's a hypothesis. It's not a theory because a theory is something that you can demonstrate. Um, you know, either to be true or false. There's more scientific legwork to be done in advancing some of the sciences in order to really put this to practice. But in terms of this being a cogent and very, very thought-provoking hypothesis, a scientific hypothesis, it certainly is one. Um, So before I go into some of these rules of thumb about um, the archetypal near-death experience and even certain um, out-of-body experiences Uh, and uh, the study goes into great detail to explain the technical definition of an algorithm and how these experiences fit an algorithm and how perhaps even consciousness itself is algorithmic Um, but there's a quick uh, summary here of some important points because we were also talking about how would if you're trying to fit this into an actual adaptational value, how are you going to gain any sort of evolutionary value from dying? And we'll read another excerpt here. Um, One meaningful statement may be derived from all these traditions. Individual behaviors in one life can have an impact on subsequent lives. The theory of natural selection requires that the postulated death and rebirth process should increase chances for survival in some way. That is, if behaviors in one life can influence those of another, uh, that influence must tend to make behaviors in the later uh, life more adaptive. A second principle for a Darwinian rebirth process emerges and can be stated as follows. 
states that facilitate adaptive behavior in a given cultural environment and one life tend to be repeated in following lives and states that facilitate maladaptive behavior tend to be avoided. For the present work, I shall call this the rule of karma. I will call the records of specific states that facilitate or suppress behavior karma. It follows that the function of rebirth may be to pre-adapt us to our cultural environments. However, the conclusion that karmas are reborn in no way implies that human beings are reincarnated, however comforting that might be. Right, so we don't even know if through studying all this if that the I am even remains that's like a whole different question ultimately so going through um, so there seem to be certain grammatical rules governing near-death experiences although research elucidating them is far from complete a pattern of rough rules of thumb appear to emerge examples include number one in India, the death process often begins not with an autoscopic out-of-body experience, but rather with uh, seeing messengers of death whose summons must be answered. And there's citations or sources for all this, too. Uh, number two, those younger than seven years old often avoid the life review and instead visit heaven or a fairyland. Three, in pre-literate cultures, the life review is often replaced by a visit to a spirit world in which significant events of the dying person's life manifest symbolically as features in the spirit world. Number four. Uh, Near-death experiencers who have been able to anticipate their death and to reflect extensively on their life often do not experience a life review, whereas those whose death appears unexpectedly usually do review their life. Number five, near-death experiencers who believe strongly in a particular religious tradition often experience the being of light as they have been taught it appears, whereas atheists may experience it simply as a presence. Number six, near-death experiencers who believe that all mysteries will be revealed at death often have a transcendent experience in which mysteries are revealed to their satisfaction. Number seven, near-death experiencers who need help guidance or an escort during their experience often encounter angels or yamatuts um i'm not sure where that comes from who may engage the experiencers in long discussions in which their concerns are dealt with number eight near-death experiencers who need reassert <sighs> near-death experiencers who need reassert uh, re damn near-death experiencers who need reassurance that it is all right to be dead often encounter deceased relatives and beloved friends uh, joyful reunions with beloved friends who have passed may facilitate positive affect in post-mortem states of consciousness <laughs> post-mortem states of consciousness what a trippy scientific phrase um, those too young uh, to have deceased friends but have lost a pet may see the pet instead those who have not lost a pet might see a comforting object, such as a toy. Number nine, a near-death experiencer whose life review was marked by destructive behavior patterns may experience a life review effectively widened to include the effects of those behaviors on others. Um, so, and then it goes on to say, this list of rules of thumb is both speculative and incomplete. Uh, each time, or each item on the list should be regarded as an approximation of a real um, gram 
as an approximation of a real quote-unquote grammatical rule that influences the algorithmic process of near-death experiences. So, and this is a very esoteric idea as well, um, which uh, the researcher and author of this study, Todd Murphy, is clearly uh, un, you know, aware of. Like I mentioned in the first episode, the idea of like an adaptational reincarnation process is something that um, Jung sort of hints to, but doesn't go all the way about, but he definitely knowingly kind of leaves the door open for that. Um, it's also something that, you know, classical esotericists at this point, like um, Austin Osmond Spare, you know, Blavatsky and the Theosophists are known to talk about this stuff. Um, the, the Rosicrucians and the Masons. This is definitely a, a recurring theme that's followed for a long time and has basically remained persistent in the West since the sort of um, 1800s Victorian revival of esotericism. But uh, this study is particularly interesting because of the the language it uses to fit this into something that is actually a scientific hypothesis and it goes into a great uh, deal of work to explain you know the the scientific relevance of equating near-death experiences to considerations of an afterlife um, and that sort of archetypal process of adaptation and 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 then therefore fitting this into some sort of cogent model that also deals with physics a little bit because you know it talks about how the 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 certainly hypothetical possibility that a soul could be um something like a soliton in physics where you can actually um in in physics essentially a soliton is known to be a self-contained like wave packet of data uh, and it's something that can maintain its structure amidst different, you know, um, amidst the environment, essentially. I'm no physicist, but I can at least explain it that far. Um, and I'm sure that was incredibly layman's terms. But the the potential, you know, because, like, people say, like, well, whatever electrical activity leaves my brain when I die, it's just going to be absorbed into the static environment and become part of, like, the ether or whatever. And... Maybe, but there are there are definitely tenets in physics that say that no, not necessarily. So uh, there's definitely room for possibility, and if you take that a step further, um, you might say that it would only um, be a matter of physics from there, some sort of electromagnetic um, gravitation for some sort of wandering soliton wave to enter its way into the third eye of some prenatal fetus or something and it's also interesting to note that we can't identify like the physical gender of a baby until uh like seven weeks 49 days and that is curiously also how long the tibetan book of the dead states that the bardo processes of the soul wandering from uh its death to a new life is so it's curious food for thought there so we've talked about a few different things this episode, so I wanted to mix it up and liven it up from some of the darkness. Um, I do think those were uh, some great last episodes, but you know I want to keep it keep it lively as well. Uh, don't just want to always stick with the true crime. So we're going to talk about some of the positive sides of the alchemical spectrum as well. Um, but we're always going to keep it weird and a little dark, you know, like we talked about death plenty. It's plenty metal, 
Hell yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, so um, I want to I, w- I want to tie it back in a little further to the the last episodes with cults though because the reason I wanted to talk about like reincarnation and some of this adaptational processes next is because this is how smart people fall into cults because there are really deep intrinsic existential and also straight up biological evolutionary needs that these beliefs fill and we need to learn part of like the esoteric alchemical process is learning how to incorporate these things into your life on an active conscious present level instead of being led by the nose or like uh, being led with a dangling carrot um, like so many religious mentalities and cult mentalities and ultimately you know I feel like the difference what boils down to the cult mentality to me and I think most people would agree with this is when someone is officially on one side of an argument and they no longer question that side once they're on it but they also no longer take into account any other cons- uh, any other angles um, that could be considered right that's cult mentality and you if you're in a cult obviously that's the most obvious way that you're um, being influenced but it it extends to religions it extends to politics it extends to any sort of ideology it extends to art people become so snooty and cultish about musicians and filmmakers and different things um so the cult mentality you don't even have to be a part of anything of any structured organization to be influenced by cult mentality and i think some of that is fun like you know there's a there's artists i like that will tongue-in-cheek reference their fan base as cults like but as long as long as that's obviously a clear joke, that's one thing. Uh, because there's a little bit of natural fervor. You know, people are going to gravitate towards points of interest. And just because they do doesn't make that a cult. But that makes it easier to snowball into a cult if you ever, if, if something ever were to happen. Um, so there's fine lines, but those lines are very subtle. Um, so and, and, and they're worth considering very much worth considering and like i said the the all the things that we talked about in this episode this is all why smart people are susceptible to cults because it's not just brainwashed idiots some people are just really broken and need a hole they have a hole that needs to be filled and they just find some smooth talking cult leader to just make them feel good but there's a lot of and there's an element uh of that that smooth talking aspect to all of it of course but these people prey on very deep intrinsic needs and once you once you pitch people enough language that they understand and then you show them enough initially so that they can trust you and and if you're devious enough you manage to corral them without them noticing into that uh, spectrum of the psyche where that cult mentality where they don't question you but they question everything else constantly then you've got them then it's just a matter of wiggling them wherever you want them next and it's terrible and it you know it's something that we all need to be aware of so that these things don't happen to us or our family members or our friends 
You know, you don't have to be like watching your back everywhere you go, but it's just important to keep these kinds of things in mind. You know, especially since we talk about the strange and esoteric here, we're going to talk about these kinds of things. Um, and, and yeah, and so I guess that's it for now. Um, I appreciate anybody tuning in. I really do. I have a lot of fun with this, and I hope you have a lot of fun listening. In the long run, um, yeah, I'm, my best guess, I, I think we reincarnate. But who knows? Who really knows? And I like people who can stay open-minded to the possibilities. If I'm wrong, that's that's alright with me. But I definitely think, even if we don't reincarnate, I'm pretty well convinced that there's an afterlife of some sort. I don't think that this is it. But that's my belief, and what you believe is up to you. Alright folks, I suppose that's going to do it for this episode. I hope there was some good food for thought in there for you. Um, don't forget to go check out my website. Go check out some of the great shows on the Fringe FM, especially my boys Joe Roop of Lighting the Void and Ryan Gable of The Secret Teachings. You can get my books, Dive Manual, Hunt Manual, and there is an excerpt that I recently posted on my website of, of Hunt Manual dealing with Jungian psychology and serial killers. So if you're a true crime fanatic, go check that out. Uh, I hope there will be some good food for thought for you there as well. And I appreciate all y'all tuning in to the Co-Intel Pro debriefing. <laughs> I mean, um, um, no, this is, uh, this is Black Hoodie Alchemy. And, um, I'm definitely just a, not an agent of any kind. So thanks for tuning in, everybody. I uh, hope to see you next time. Peace and blessings to you. Ah, uh, hell, what am I talking about? I forgot. I gotta do some introductions. Some of you might have noticed that the time is running a little short, and that's because I got room for um, a song that I love that I'm going to be playing at the end here. Um, depending on um, if you're listening on the radio on the Fringe FM, uh, it'll probably cut off a little bit at the end, but I'm just going to slap the whole song on there. Uh, so if you're streaming this anywhere else, you'll get the whole song. If you don't like it, you know it's at the end. That's why I didn't put it at the commercial break, because it's 10 minutes long. But it's a blues epic Recorded in one take, uh, recorded by my friend Mr. A.P. Strange, fellow researcher for TN. Um, and it's this like existential for TN, esoteric uh, blues epic and where uh, he's shredding away. And I really love it. Um, he showed it to me because he, um, I actually sent him a copy of my book Hunt Manual. And he eventually, um, it didn't actually take him that long. He read it and then he... Um, gave me a little bit of um, a review, and I'm pulling it up here, and I'm gonna go ahead and read it to you real quick. Um, cause so, um, the poem he talks about in here actually um, is something that became this song, Phantasmagoria Blues. All right, so it's, it's it reads, "I finished the hunt manual. What a wild ride! I wasn't sure what to make of it at first, but it really turned out to be quite a good treatise on shadow work and actualization." and really ran the gamut of weird and Fortean phenomena along the way. Oddly, that goblin universe, Asterix, well, what I call the setting for Hunt Manual, we'll get into that another time. Um, oddly, uh, that goblin universe setting seemed familiar to me, and it was a bit off-putting. I realized eventually that there was a book of poems I wrote years ago that tell a story which takes place in a very similar environment. It was uh, largely based on nightmares I had been plagued with at the time, and mostly, 
Unbeknownst to me at the time, the act of writing it was itself a magical working. The book acted as a hypersigil and broke me out of a bad, unhealthy rut I was in. The only downside was I was unable to write poetry anymore afterward. Thank you again for sending the books, etc. Um, so yeah, I'm going to play this song, Phantasmagoria Blues, in a, a little bit weird roundabout way, almost like a soundtrack, uh, a piece of the soundtrack to my book, Hunt Manual. Uh, and also, I realized that um, they're going, by the time this podcast uh, radio show goes out, they will have announced uh, the, the and released the trailer for the UFO documentary I'm going to be in. So you can go check that out on YouTube. It's developed by the guys over at Mind Escape, Mike and Maurice. Um, and they the, the documentary is called The Experiences from UAP to DMT. And um, I'm really excited. These guys are great minds behind uh, the, the, the whole project. And... Um, I'm especially blown away to be in this documentary uh, with Dr. Rick Strassman. He's the, the first doctor to do clinical trials with DMT and um, has been someone that I've known about for like at least a decade now and just someone that's actually inspired me in some ways. Uh, not that I would like to be a doctor, but um, his work, I mean, talk about practical like investigations, empirical investigations of mysticism. Uh, so I really respect him and he's a bit inspirational to me. So go check out that documentary. The, to, uh, the release date is to be announced, but it will be probably, definitely this year, sometime this summer. And what's up with um, what's up with my Peruvian listeners out there? Final shout out. Um, I've charted on Apple Podcasts in the top 10 in Peru since the first episode release. So um, I expected this to be a kind of slow burn to start with. And it... it like I'm not saying that I'm uh, <laughs> I don't even know quite how many people it is but I've, I it's been consistent uh, in Peru so shout out to everybody over there and it seems like for, uh, as far as my data is concerned it seems to be mostly men from 25 to 45 so appreciate y'all um, I don't know what's in the water out there <laughs> or why you uh, what is occurring with this trend but I dig it share it around keep doing whatever you're doing keep listening uh, and if anyone wants to, any of my Peruvian friends, listeners, write in. How did you find this show? What's up? Tell me about it. And um, all right, that's it for now. Without further ado, I'm going to play uh, the song by my friend A.P. Strange and his friend uh, under the musical name Cowboy Matt Hopewell. This is the song Phantasmagoria Blues. You are listening to Black Hoodie Alchemy. I am Anthony Tyler. This is the Fringe FM you can check me here on the Fringe FM every Monday evening, 6 p.m. Pacific time. Oh, by the way, I'm the number 10 philosopher in the Top 10 Philosophy podcast in Peru on Apple Podcasts. Not all podcasts. Let me do a this leads you there. Take care. Peace out. Chasing Chartreuse Chimera through a crystalline cacophony, I came across the man with the baboon heart, who suggests that in synesthesia, mustard yellow is the most powerful sound. Hermaphroditic in nature, 
He breeds the basilisks, feeds the toads who sit on roosters' eggs for seven years at a time. gravitational pull of which tears me asunder. I find myself broken near a mountain stream. It seems that chimera run rampant around here. I fear that they're the last of their kind. There's not nearly enough psychedelia in the world, says the carry-on fly. Having flown about gaseous geysers going nowhere fast. Relying heavily on the symmetry of circular theory. This world cares not for pie, but it does rather like pumpkin. Synesthetic synapses pull me to Paris, where the old clown beckons me to take a look behind his tattered curtains. The Jersey Devil smiles as I step inside. I spied a miserable man. His misery monopolizing the gaiety of my good fortune. It was assumed that we knew nothing of his presence. The sadness that seeps sourly in every corner of the surrounding circus. Chimera everywhere, letting me and my new friend know that we're not alone. We're never alone. And having our own beasts, we travel far through landscapes and ionospheres for which there exists no known cartography. Cartomancy seems more effective, so I draw the ace of spades. The old clown laughs for maybe the first time since his heyday. 
Suddenly we grow much smaller until we fade into priceless oblivion. The carry-on fly spots us and says, I'll wait here for you. But soon this whole world, smaller now than even one of my thousand eyes, will crumble under the weight of mountain mollusks, chimera, basilisks. Remember, you can never go home again. Fantastically, I return to my awful ennui, drab and boring reality. Start dreaming immediately, the next cacophonous calamity, the chimera of my desire.